What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Barry Moschowski, an independent global strategy director who works largely out of Sydney and in Asia. And today we're going to discuss designing better, more creative leaders and helping those leaders create better, more creative workplaces for the makers that they hire. Barry, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. How did you get into these two heavily intertwined topics that are going to be critical to the future of humanity? So I'm a recovering strategies director from agencies and I've worked with tenaciously talented people in agencies in Sydney, San Francisco, New York. And about five years ago, I left agency world and I, I did an executive MBA at the Berlin School of Creative Leadership. And it got me to realize that A, in agency roles, agencies are not developing talents and with skill sets that step outside of your domain. And B, the industry and where the future of work is going is actually not thinking about upskilling people within agency business models and even outside of agencies. You know, commercial creativity is a very broad canvas right now. And increasingly, the workplace is not upskilling people with the type of skill sets we need, not only for now work, and how to tackle how automation and technology is changing our workplace now, but also about how do we navigate increasingly freelance, promiscuous, driven relationships where we dip in and out on projects, which is just going to become the new normal. Mm -hmm. So that's really become the core focus of the strategy work that I've been doing across Asia PAC with clients, whether it's in strategic foresight work or working directly with organizations around organizational design. The output of my strategic brain has changed a lot from, you know, what is the advertising communications idea idea from a, an advertising comms point of view to far more upstream as well, but linking mm -hmm. linking that that whole set. So, okay. yeah, that's that's briefly what the work I've been doing the last five years in a snapshot. All right, my, my hunch is that there are a lot of people who work in the advertising world and not just the advertising world, but especially the advertising world who mid decade of their biological age and at the end of decade of their biological age, as in 29, 34, 39, 44 and decades on either side, that they, some people were like, oh, I think I want to switch up careers. Should I go do an MBA? Should I go to do an MFA? Should I like leave and volunteer for somewhere? Every now and then I hear about the Berlin School of Creative Leadership, but I don't hear a lot about it. Could you tell us a bit about what it is and what it does? Because I know a lot of amazing people go learn there. Sure. So I think there's two parts to that answer. The Berlin School of Creative Leadership is an established organization, about 15 years worth. And what they do is they look at creative leadership holistically. And the answer is not just a European lens or an Asian lens or a North American lens, etc. So it's an executive MBA program which is designed to encompass learning modules in Shanghai, Tokyo, New York, San Francisco, and Berlin. And in the future, you would imagine Africa would be a component of that as well. And over the course of, of a series of modules and your thesis, your master's thesis, you then experience creative leadership through the lenses of those cultures. And as you can imagine, China and Japan and America and all these transformative changes and the geopolitical changes that they're going through, that then informs a more worldly, rounded cultural leader with a, that you acquire different skill sets. So my driving desire to do the program originally was to acquire skill sets in financial acumen, which I never actually had 
from being a strategy director. I mean, the limited extent was managing my P&L of my team to inform a business case to hire someone or to invest in resources. But that was very limited compared to what my account service colleagues had by way of diversified skill sets and strong financial acumen. Mm. So that's really what the Berlin School of Creative Leadership is designed to do, mm-hmm. which is why I've been doing a lot of the work, the Khan Creative Leadership Program as well, and driving much more into executive learning and education. Okay. So I, I hear where your drive came from, which is to say the thing you were moving towards. What were you moving from? What was going on in your life that made you think that this was the thing to do? So I think it was a combination of a couple of things. But to summarize it, I think working in agencies, you know, we all used to work in agencies even five years ago where the lines were quite clear, digital, media, creative. Now it's also blurred. And I found myself working in a, a big media agency and my desire for to rethink career-wise, I mean, I was 36 and I was just thinking, well, where, what is the scaling aspect of my career? I, and I was working in just a big media agency where media buying sat on another floor. They were buying media in isolation of the idea. And then you found yourself realizing, well, what's the difference if I'm in a creative or a media agency? You know, you're both trying to fight the, aim, the same media endgame. And that, that point, and, and I think it's interesting what you touched on around the different, you know, trajectories where people rethink their careers. I decided, you know what, I actually need to enrich myself with an executive level education beyond my bachelor's degree. And what's interesting is that when I canvassed with my employer and with different businesses in the marketplace, what would my value be today versus if I had an executive MBA behind me? The consistent answer I got in the marketplace was, well, what do you mean? Why you think would pay you more. So my value proposition didn't necessarily increase, even though I invested in my education, to then create more value for my employer or for other employers. Mm. And then I realized that the actual system was broken. That when you look at the the business model of agencies, they're designed very much in a top-down, you know, cheap worker bees, you know, low cost of capital, et cetera. And actually it wasn't in their interest to invest in people getting masters and MBAs and the more research I did informally, people went on that journey on their, on their own. And that's actually why I decided to go down the path of freelancing and being more independent, because if I backed myself to do the executive MBA, I could then pursue different types of strategic work mm-hmm. and almost value and back myself rather than try and get an employer to fight the argument of paying me more because I'm backing myself through getting an executive MBA. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So my initial reaction as I heard you explain the reticence of an employer to invest and how you would have to do it. I was like, yeah, you would like, and then I was like, hang on, but why would they invest? Because it's, it's increasingly become a game of just churning out work. And at the same time, I don't think it's difficult to argue that a lot of education systems are rigged and a bit fake and materialistic and not always great either. So I feel like there's a weird riddle there where an, an employer might not see value in it and the education system is, you know, there can be a lot of mediocrity and gamesmanship and it's super expensive as well. You know, now that you've done it, if you were managing you back when you talked to people about the value of this, would you invest in someone to do this kind of work? Firstly, I, I agree broadly with your principle, what's been wrong with, with education and what's the return from the business. I think the way that as a director and as a leader of a team, the way that I think organizations should structure that conversation is, okay, let's work on a return on investment business case for the value you'll create in the organization. I think that's the gap. 
when you look at an agency model, for example, there's a lot of ambiguity around what the value proposition is that the agency is delivering to the client, but then they hire rock stars and they just expect them to, to produce better work. If you think about, for example, what, what I did with the way that I monetized my MBA while still being a strategy director, because I didn't leave straight away from the agency model, I worked on a value creation framework, which our finance professor explained was the source of how VCs frame investments. And I translated a value creation framework into a source for human capital for my team, which fundamentally changed how we create value as a team of five strategists and what the KPIs and the metrics were around that and how we incentivize that growth. Now, the challenge is that I was doing that in silo and not in a congruence way with the rest of the organization, which frames another challenge of organizations today and why you need different skill sets to navigate that. Mm. But that was how I translated something from my MBA program. And my employer took notice because the output of my team increased because they were shared, the shared KPIs and they were incentivized differently. But I also designed it around the human capital of my team. How do we leverage our networks for new business growth? How do we tap into the, the HR handbook, which says there's a, in fine print, there's a small percentage of, of shared wins if you bring in so much revenue. So I actually democratized my KPIs as a director with more junior people in my team, which actually led to a, a whole win-win principle that we all deliver together. So that was, I think, some of the, the tangible proof in the pudding mm -hmm. that you get from doing an executive MBA is how do you use your current job to be the guinea pig to test and learn for that? Yeah. And if you create more value, then educating that across the organization that they can see and understand it. But I don't yeah. think that that happens at scale. No, but I think what, what I'm hearing in that is that you reframed the work of what you were doing to reach a different budget because the initial budget you're asking for could lead to a conversation like this. We just need you to do the work, keep the client happy, don't lose the client, get on a pitch every now and then and manage a team. Okay. Can you just manage a team? That's kind of like the, the original frame of the request of, can I get paid to do like really high education? I'm like what for? Whereas what you're doing is reframing the value of it into larger numbers to say that if you pay small small letter X for my education, then I'm going to bring in high letter X. I don't know what this is, by the way, but like uh, high letter X pitches and growth. Uh, and, and also, I think as an individual, as an independent person now, you're probably able to access budgets that people in advertising agencies don't access. So you're not even having the same conversation as you would have had five years ago. Is that all fair to say? It's completely fair to say. And I actually think what's interesting is that clients are trusting strategic truth that is not filled with bullshit. There's, there's no bias behind it. And what I say by that is that anyone who works in an agency or anyone who works in a business model with a predisposed focus, you have to toe that line because that's how the business makes money. Increasingly, what I'm finding is when you are working in an independent capacity or when you're working with, with another entity but you have a voice, a liberated strategic voice is what's actually being valued in not only boardrooms, but, you know, in clients' budgets. And it's being converted that way because they know that they're not being bullshitted and you're advocating for a point of view based on substance, based on quantum qual data. So that's informed, but it's not actually sending them an advertising solution, which in some cases is a conflict of interest because how can advertising actually solve for the problem you're suggesting? Mm -hmm. But an agency is one-dimensional if they haven't pivoted. And that's where I think the consultancy models are eating their lunch because they're more lateral and they're more diversified in their talent pool to solve for different problems because they're actually designed in a very different way.
Yeah. So there's like three things coming together with what your education has enabled you to do, or, or and it maybe even the start of it when you're arguing to get uh, reimbursed or some sort of money to have the education in the first place. Uh, there's a different use case of you, you're accessing a different budget and different budget owners. Is that correct? Those three things are usually, yep. Yep. yeah. Um, could you give us a sense, could you run us quickly through, say, three different use cases, budgets, and budget owners that are new to your working life? Sure. So I've been on the bad wagon of profit and social purpose for years, only until I did my thesis that I realized that the way to unlock that conversation is actually by flipping the model and using finance and and the financial KPI as an incentive to drive that, with Mm. social purpose being a cherry on the top. Mm. So the CFO now, in any conversation I have, even when I work with agencies or even within a client structure, If the brief comes from marketing, the first thing I do is say, why don't we triangulate this conversation with other stakeholders, firstly finance, operations, et cetera. Let's get a holistic view to diagnose, is that actually the right problem? And what I'm finding is, is that by by doing that, it's creating more cross-disciplinary collaboration within organizations, which traditionally organizations do terribly, whether you're working in an agency or on a client side. But actually by bringing people to the table and just being honest about that, that level sets the conversation, which leads to better work. It also helps unlock different budgets, which are squirreled away. So when you flip CSR into, well, actually, this is about brand activation, you start to get people being more generous with their time and energy and their budgets because they, they frame the winners one proposition together. So I think that's definitely one way that I've been doing it. Mm-hmm. Another approach has also been to, to move away from time boxing because you know, I don't think creativity works in that construct and actually frame much more long-term relationships in a sequential phasing of a process and, and helping clients create value by understanding what value will be created by when and what are the KPIs and the measuring points for that. So I think what's interesting when you're independent, you don't have the political capital to go into, you know, I've just worked recently with a big insurance brand, which owns about 10 insurance brands in the portfolio. And we're trying to tackle what is the future of loyalty you know, that is not a come in and present, go away for six weeks, come back and give us the answer. That is the beginning point on a strategic journey that I hope to go on for the next 12 to 18 months. But you earn your supper at each point. And what's interesting is when you work in a very generous way and you say, well, this is, I think, what the end game is. This is how I can help you. But let's break it down into sizable pieces. I think you build trust by working that way. So I think the common thread in, in those two answers is, strong creative collaboration between cross disciplines and also framing what an end game is that everyone can get behind Mm. because I'm finding a lot of clients overwhelmed by complexity and want to partner with like-minded people to do great things together. And I don't think that that's overcomplicated. You know, I think that's, that's true to agencies, collaborators, independent artists, people want to work with good people when there's good karma and everyone's aligned around what the successful outcome looks like. Yeah, I feel this is part of the life cycle of a, I will say the word young, like a young strategist who tries to get in, they get in, they become an employee. After a while, they consider becoming a freelancer. And sometimes after months or years into freelancing, they're like, hang on, I'm kind of, am I playing the same game? And a lot of people are like, I'm totally cool with freelancing. I can do it for life. Other people are like, I feel like I'm doing the same game. Like I'm still filling in timesheets, but I don't have health insurance in certain parts of the world. <laughs> and I'm still selling time for money. 
And, you know, I'm in meetings, I have to turn up in these meetings. It still don't make sense. I just don't have to care about them as much. Maybe this is, I'm being a bit stereotypical here. And as they start to look around, I think the thing that they have to look around for is different use cases of what they do, different budgets and different budget owners. And that's kind of part of that next phase of someone it's not that it's a, it's up, but, but it's a, a next. It's a potential next phase of maturity, uh, which is not to look down on on freelancing. And it's it's it's, it's it sometimes takes a while for someone to realize that these things are even questions that they can ask themselves. Yeah, and a lot of it comes down. I mean, it's a two way street, by the way. To your point about the freelancer, I mean that person's finding their way in a marketplace which is increasingly competitive because businesses are restructuring all the time. If you flip it then to a strategy director or whoever the manager or the, the director is, whatever business model you're in, you've now got to navigate a changing workforce from FTEs plus promiscuous freelancers. And I use that word promiscuous in a positive way. People who are coming in for a mission to get a paycheck, to do the job and then leave. What does that do to your culture? What, is, what does it do to the cultural fabric of the organization, which you spend all this time driving values, et cetera, to drive retention and to you know, stimulate productivity from the team you have and have longevity in the organization from client relationships, et cetera. What does that airport-like nature of transients do to your organization? Mm-hmm. You know, these are very real issues that directors have to face on a daily basis, but that's what I meant at the beginning of this conversation. How do we, we are not equipping ourselves with skill sets how to manage and you know, almost the fluid cultural paradigms of these organizations, mm-hmm. which are changing all the time. Okay. There's a lot of complexities at play. So I want to get into the topic in a second, but I've got one, I think I've got one and a half more questions. Actually, it's like two and a half. How long did it go for? What was the exact focus of the main piece of uh, writing and research that you did? And then what were the benefits of just being able to create a little bit of time in your life and career to focus on this stuff? Because I think it's so beneficial for people to get some kind of study time in their careers you know, when you're pitching all the time, working weekends, if, if you have a, also have a family or don't have a family, whatever, like it's, it's really, it's quite stressful. The, the idea of doing study on top of all of that could be quite oppressive for some people. So how long was the course? What was the focus of your final study? And then what were the, the benefits, maybe even the unexpected benefits of just getting a little bit of time to focus on what you're interested in? That is a very, very good question. I think the, the way that I designed it, I mean, you can sprint it or you can take the long game because there's a series of modules. So it's like a conveyor belt. I designed mine over about two and a half years because every, probably every four to five months, I would parachute into Berlin for two weeks. And, you know, you live like a local and you go to classes and you've got world-class lecturers, et cetera. And I did that in Shanghai and Tokyo. So I, I did that over two and a half years and I spread it out. And coming into it, the, the whole reason for being, and, and I think Droga 5 and working with David Droga, publicist and Droga 5, that really fundamentally rewired my brain from profit to much more of a, a profit and social purpose lens. My thesis was always going to be proving why the world needs to change and our industry needs to change around profit and social purpose. And when I designed my thesis, which was a, almost like an excruciating strategic academic marathon, which lasted 10 months, you know, when you go to your point, when you go from studying at university and then working, life changes. You don't have the discipline to work in the evenings or before a Pilates class at 7 a.m. on a Saturday, I'd be editing my literature notes. You know, it becomes the new normal in your life. But what that journey, my research design was quite global. 
And I won't bore you, I'll just tell you in, in 40 seconds. But the way I designed it was how do I get a global lens on the value of organizational purpose? And what I originally intended to do was prove, as I said, the value of that and why a brand should change. But then I flipped it and said, well, let's take a cynical view on organizational purpose, which, by the way, I think is where the world is today. It's become the new punching bag, work washing, et cetera. But when I took that and I flipped the model, I thought, okay, well, what is the impact of organizational purpose on people, profit, and culture? And let me look at organizations who have embraced purpose and what strategic lessons can I extrapolate that we all can learn from about the value of that. And I spent six months doing research with Bupa in Australia, which is a big health insurer, it's a global health insurer, and their purpose is to enable people to live longer, healthier, happier lives. So I did a six-month strategic holistic audit of C-suite leaders in the organization through to frontline staff. And I was very lucky because my executive sponsor was the head of marketing for Australia and New Zealand. So incredible access. And I came back with 21 strategic recommendations, which which I think ruffled a couple of feathers because you're dealing with, you know, how people are actually leveraging purpose in their day jobs or how in some cases is actually not being used to drive performance or add value to the culture. And it becomes lipstick on a pig. And then my, the other aspects of my research, I interviewed Virgin Unite in London, Oscar Health Insurance in New York. So I interviewed about 12 organizations globally and it framed really what was for me invigorating strategic learnings around how we as an industry can do and be better. And that type of paper I've shared through the Berlin School. And I've also used as many forums as I can to share those learnings because our industry, I think, wants to embrace profit and social purpose, but we're starting to rightfully so call bullshit on brands that are not integrating that into the core fiber of the organization, that are not making supply chain decisions around how that works, or organizations who are sprouting bullshit to the public, but internally still haven't redesigned around income inequality and closing the gender pay gaps. So I think rightfully so, purpose is being questioned now. And, and that, yeah, it's a, it's a really strategically relevant thing because I think increasingly society will embrace brands which add value rather than detract from it to the cultural fabric. Okay. So actually, I've got half a question. I don't know. I'm just making up numbers. Half a question before we get into the topic. And that question is, what was the best thing about getting that time to yourself? I know you touched on answers there, but what was the best thing in a sentence or two? The cultural humility to learn from people from about 25 different countries around the world that we're all actually trying to solve similar problems and there are much smarter ways to solve them than you know yourself. And it's a real humility exercise in cultural intelligence and strategic and different rigor that you wouldn't acquire if you just continue going down your own life path. Awesome. And there's something refreshing about arriving at that sense of humility and seeing it up in other people, isn't it? You kind of are able to let your guard down, realize you don't know maybe what you thought you knew and just focus on the journey. 100%. And yeah. also understanding to be more generous, you need to be more vulnerable and authentic with other people, mm-hmm. which actually makes you a better person even before your title steps into, into it and the role you play in an organization. Okay. So I want to get into the next, the, the top real topics here around designing better leaders and also better workplace or better and more creative leaders and also designing workplaces for makers, for creative people. Is there a way that I can challenge us? Because I know that you've studied, you spent a lot of time with executives and with research and academics. Is there any way for us to try to avoid academic and executive language as we move in? To this part of the 100%. conversation. Okay. All right. Avoidance. So let's, let's call each other on it. So we're, we're leaning towards two, one and two syllable words here. That, that, I don't know if there's, yeah, I don't know. Uh, 
that, that's my creative constraint. We'll break it immediately, no doubt. So, Barry, how do you design better and more creative leaders? Street talk. So, I think the way you do that is by acknowledging what are the confines and, and the structures that they're working in. And whether it's a full-time employed person or a freelancer working for a traditional organisation, which, by the way, I should tell you, Tracy Brown and I, who's, she's a, a CX and X consultant, we're designing the future of doing research. And that's trying to look at how creative makers are, what they need from their work experience globally. And, and I think to answer your question, part of what you design is what are the current organisational boundaries? What are the structures that people are working in? And how are those increasingly addressing people's needs? And there's a big gap in between. And increasingly the needs of creative leaders who deal with ambiguity on a daily basis, who are not taught the resilient strategic skill sets on how to navigate those, and also how to make more informed decisions to deal with that uncertainty. I think that is where the rub, you know, the rub is hitting the road in terms of how people need to acquire those. Now, some of the forums globally, to answer your question, you've got IDEO has launched a creative leadership program, the Berlin School, a kind creative leadership program I referenced. Thankfully, we now have different entry points into that global conversation where people can upskill themselves and, and really make themselves better at creative makers, but also add more value to the relationships and the organisations. So brilliantly, there's more resources now than there ever have been from an industry point of view. But it's still increasingly, it still starts with the person making the decision to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you talk to your accountant like I have in Australia, it's bizarre. Government legislation and frameworks are actually not up to speed with how people are working now. So I don't know that you've got a global audience who listens to your podcast. If they decide, you know what, I want to go and do an executive MBA, they might find, find that their tax code punishes them because the company's not paying them to go and get educated. So we need the triangulation of government and, and business and you know, entrepreneurial future of learning. We need those things to all connect. Otherwise, it's so bloody hard. I mean, my mortgage funded my executive MBA because my accountant said I couldn't get a tax break because a company wasn't paying me to go and do it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm forcing us to the streets, Barry. I did give this give us that as a creative constraint. I heard some large language there. I heard some large language, Baza. I want to I want to interpret it because here's the thing. I believe in this. I believe in what you're talking about and these topics. I I wish they were taught to four-year-olds in some version. And I just get nervous that they're so caught up in academia and expensive education that they're not going to leak out into the public in the way that they could. And I think people listening to this are part of that leakage. So what I heard there a little bit was that there needs to be a cultural adjustment to the idea of not knowing because doing creative work involves not knowing most of the time. And even when you know, you're like, ah, I think I know. That's one thing that I heard in there and getting comfortable with that. The other is creating... Uh, opportunities for people to actually learn how to be creative, how to work with each other, how to manage people who are creative, and that you're going to need some kind of connection between business and government to allow policies uh, at a government level, but also at a business level to help people do this stuff because it is very much people work. That's that's some of the themes that I heard in there. When you're talking about structures and confines, could you go back to that and, and take it to the streets for me? Sure. And good. I feel like I was verbally tasered for using the wrong language. And I agree with you. You were. Sorry. You, you know, Barry, sometimes I don't agree, but you, I definitely tasered you just then. Sorry about that. No, no, no. And, and I appreciate you calling me out. <laughs> Thank not, you. And it's, and it's not wrong language. It's just that we have a job no, you're to right. do here. You're right. We were conditioned and I appreciate the, the pushback. So from a confines and a, and a structure point of view, I think, you know, employees increasingly were working within the confines and the rules that are set by businesses. 
you know, we're told how many hours we have to come to work and very seldom you see maternity leave innovation and, you know, actual policies that are designed to enable people to be happier and to work more productively. And that's not rocket science. So increasingly, we're seeing people choose to not work for organizations because organizations actually don't understand the people that work for them. Mm-hmm. And it's more than just, you know, a, a flexible work policy, et cetera. It simply should be redesigned around what is meaningful to the people who work for you and what stimulates the most productive, happy outcomes. Happy people usually equates to happier work. And I don't think it's more complicated than that. Mm. And what, what I'm seeing, you know, the future of doing research that's been going for a couple of months, and by the way, if any of your listeners would love to have you contribute to it, we're seeing a, a creative maker global framework around real disillusionment. People are questioning what is their purpose on a personal basis, let alone their connection to working for bigger organizations. Totally. When you look at people who work for Facebook, you could give me $10 million and I wouldn't want to work for Facebook because I can't separate my value system with how I know Facebook is behaving in society. And I genuinely wonder on a daily basis, people who I know go to work at Facebook, how do they with good conscience go and work at Facebook? And I think that's actually part of a bigger conversation around the bullshit word would have been around activism. I actually think a human way to describe it was people just living their values and saying, you know what, I want to do great work, but I actually don't want to sell my soul to a business to do that. Mm. And I think we'll see people making more, the bullshit word would be civic, but people making more values-led decisions around businesses, entities, and other people to, who are aligned around doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. which is why I admire what you and Julian Cole are doing in even creating this movement and these conversations. But good karma will win out. And I think increasingly, traditional organizations which bound people in like you know rabbits in a cage and say, you have to come and work here, et cetera, they will increasingly liberate the way people work and people will have more freedom. Otherwise, they won't retain their talent. Yeah. And, and, for, and thank you for that. For, uh, for what it's worth, the, way, the thing that I return to, I've mentioned this a few times, is uh, trying to solve a problem for myself, which is trying to help people who think for a living live. That's the, that's the language that I return to. I deal with a lot of people who think for a living who feel quite isolated, either because geographically they are or in their agency. If they're in an agency, they're possibly literally the lone strategist in that agency working for people who don't quite get them, don't know if they want them there, etc. Uh, as well as people who are not really isolated in their day jobs, but maybe mentally isolate themselves. And I want to help them feel that they've got a gang who's got their backs, who's going to help them get through whatever it is they're going through now, because at some point they're going to jump out of a strategy job and they're going to have to work out what their life's work is. So that's, that's kind of like the set of thinking that I return to whenever I feel like I'm floundering. And I wanted to put that in there because chats about purpose and vision and meaning can get very lost. And the cliche is to usually use the word empowerment and, you know, things like empowering the synergies of human potentiality. And you're like, no wonder you're confused. That doesn't mean anything. So I wanted to offer how I look at things. Um, You mentioned choosing not to work for companies. Are you talking about people choosing not to work for a particular company or for companies at all, or just opting out of working for anybody no, it, it, I don't think, look, if you're going to detach yourself from working in the system, then I, I think you're going to have a very unfruitful financial and, and career in terms of portfolio. What I mean is that specific decisions around employers. I reckon there are a lot of people, whether it's in Amsterdam or Sydney or New York or San Francisco, wherever you are, I think increasingly there's a global groundswell around people marrying what they think from a values point of view with their decisions of who they want to work for. 
So for example, you know that there's people who have said, oh, I, won't, I won't work on tobacco. If you work in agencies, I won't touch tobacco or I won't touch alcohol. So increasingly now, I think that, that definition of what I won't touch is being broadened to the types of organizations, mm. whether it's and, and some people who work for Google are questioning their employment there. And we can see the cracks beginning to emerge. And, and I think that's also what's driving a lot of people making decisions around what's important to me, how do I get paid to do what I love, like you just said, you know, from a resource point of view, and how do I align with more people who collaborate around that way of working? Mm. And I think there's something really interesting and invigorating around that, but I also think that needs a certain set of skill sets to help navigate those very, very fluid structures of how people work mm -hmm. when you're not connected to an organization. So if anyone's had their role made redundant or if they've been you know, fired or let go, whatever the terms you want to use, when you lose your identity when you work for an organization, that's soul crushing because mm -hmm. the first thing society says to you is, where do you work? And when you are an independent or a freelancer, it's a very confronting question because it's a very traditional framework of why people are asking that. I think increasingly people will say, well, I actually work for myself and I, this is my portfolio. And there's a very, very enriching reaction, I think, that society is having now as people shift towards a repertoire of different projects you work on, different people you pursue work with, and frankly, the different boundaries that you can work in. Mm. You know, it's refreshingly all changing. But how, like, the thing I've talked to a lot of people about, especially strategy folk who want to do quote-unquote purpose work, social purpose work, or just do something more meaningful. It's like, if you're going to work for a company that's been around for a period of time, at some point that company's done some dodgy stuff, whether it's not paying taxes to funding parts of a war somewhere in the world. Like You, you can find these issues that are going to cross your moral boundaries pretty much everywhere. Like, how can someone even navigate that moral search for working for somewhere that's worth working for? I 100% agree with you. If you step back and you look at some of like the bigger picture changes that are happening now, in Australia, for example, we had the Royal Banking Commission, which exposed all the evils of the financial services industry. What's happened as a result of that is that people on the boards themselves are now becoming more paranoid. They're saying, oh, you know, we read something in the Wall Street Journal that there's a CEO conglomerate in America, a CEO council, who've now recognised that profit needs to go, needs to work hand in hand with purpose. How do we change our organization? How do we do the right thing? There will always be stuff in the closet of evil doing, but the permissibility now from a, a board stakeholder level, senior stakeholders within organizations, they're actually creating the permission in many countries around the world for people like you just mentioned to have opportunities to do more purpose-led work because they are recognizing that those organizations need to change. Obviously, the majority of organizations are still just focused on the next quarter of profit and will just keep doing, you know, same shit as usual, expecting the same outcomes. Mm. But, you know, the Unilevers and the few examples that we see in the market are actually having, I think they're creating the right momentum to give the people you're talking about searching for what purpose in their work. There are more opportunities. And you can see that at Khan, by the way. What was the Khan Lions, you know, five or 10 years ago for for winning awards that, that had a bit of social good, we're now seeing brands completely pivot to creating more cultural value and generating positive profit on the back of that. That's yeah. becoming more normal. So the conditions from a marketplace point of view, I think are leveling out to enable those opportunities. I guess my point and then the, the question from it isn't that people aren't more aware of it and in, in a way where a lot of people do legitimately believe in not doing so much evil, but also that if you're going to choose where to work right now, 
it's hard because at some point you, you could put there's probably a game show you could create which is like tell me something really bad about the place i'm thinking about working so i don't end up working there the game show's got a long name because like and i'm not talking about purpose-led work i'm talking about the business itself because you could get into kind of any company and go that's horrible depending on your moral stance. And the people looking for this moral values-based decision, a lot of them, not all of them, are trying to apply absolute morals. And I just don't think it's going to get reciprocated in most businesses or, or even in a lot of not-for-profits, which can be horribly bureaucratic and political and self-serving. I've seen it up close. That's not everywhere. It's a lot. Like, How does someone looking to have meaning and have their values reciprocated really make an informed decision about this? Is it even possible? I, I agree with everything you just said, and that's why it's so bloody hard and it's really complex because you still need to get paid by someone and the, the system is actually ruled by a lot of big organisations and that's where the opportunities are linked to. And that, that this is part of the quest for people searching for meaning and marrying that with doing great work, getting paid for it and having a sustained pipeline. That's why this is so hard and I don't think there is one simple bullet answer. But it's also not, I'm not a, a Greenpeace activist who's so far on the other end of the spectrum. I think you can be a business person with a social compass and a cultural compass and to advocate for the opportunities when you see them. And, and I think there's a, a, there's a balance, there's a practical balance. Mm -hmm. When you use the phrase happy people leads to happier work, do you have a sense on to what degree creativity is involved in that for most of humanity? My, my feeling is that it's everyone, except for people who are super order and hierarchy oriented. But like, I often don't hear us talk about creativity in businesses that you don't see as being creative businesses, even though I, be, I believe happiness is partly connected to creativity, not just meaning, but creativity is exploring your meaning. Do you have a point of view on that? Any research? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't have research links to that happiness to reference. The research that will come out of the future of doing research piece that I reference will inform that. But I do think there's something interesting in the organizations like Pixar, you know, organizations that we put forward as the benchmark of creatively led organizations. I think we're also learning that those are also imperfect and it's a work in progress. Mm. You know, there are issues that have come out in terms of leadership abuse, et cetera, that even, even within those organisations that are positive, creatively-led environment, purpose-led environments, they don't necessarily lead to happier outcomes. So that's why the complexities at play, I think, need to inform a much bigger piece of work. But well, yeah, the, I, I well, think that, that's what I could offer. Well, then you could get into the question of, is the word happy for happy people and the word happier for happier work a misdirection? Is, is happiness really the thing that we're chasing here versus, versus a word like meaning, which can be problematic in its own ways? 100%. And that's why I think this path of conversation globally should be much richer and much deeper and, and it's got to continue. Because when you look at contentment and people feeling satisfied with their work, and being happy with a smaller pay packet but more fulfillment in their work, that's, that's also really interesting, mm -hmm. you know, to look at that and, and the freedom that, that a different way of working, what that gives you, whether it's financial or happiness or otherwise, whatever the, the term you want to use it. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. It's a really interesting path to explore. Okay. I want to get into makers and workplaces, but... If you could patronize me by answering this question, I think it would be useful. So as far as the question, how do you design better leaders and specifically better leaders who are more creatively capable and compassionate and compassionate to people who do the creative work, the makers, could we try to get to a list of five things that someone in a leadership role could do better 
if they want to embrace more creative minds in their workplaces? I guess that's two topics kind of merging, actually. Yes, let's do it. So I think the first step is actually having a conversation about the elephants in the room. And, and in some cases, you know, if the trend of CMOs continue, then we're going to have a lack of leadership coming from a client point of view to inform downstream all the work that agencies do, for example. And what we can see is that change between and a CMO becoming more of a growth a growth director who's mm. in charge of understanding the numbers and how to mm. stimulate that, which you mm. could argue is always the point of marketing. Everybody's going to end up as a pseudo CFO. We all make the world in our own image. And I think businesses are making the world in the image of the numbers people that they like. Exactly. Totally agree. So when you say elephant in the room, give it to me in straight talk. What is the elephant in the room? Well, the elephant in the room, I think it depends on the business you're working for. If you're, for example working in an insurance business selling automotive insurance, there, that's, there's not a sustainable end game. I mean, the tension point there is automation and increasingly the fact that people don't want to actually own cars. So there is a, there's a commercial conflict of interest there, okay. for example, that mm -hmm. you could be tackling. So what is your role with you and your team to enable change within that? It's forming alliances within the organization to change the cultural way how the business sees a bigger opportunity. So I think those skill sets that are required for that are about cross-disciplinary collaboration, framing what the potential vision could be, and then mapping out a path to get there. And that, I think, comes down to the fundamental core skill sets of communication, which a lot of leaders, we're not trained to have those, we acquire those through survival needs, you know, and, and trying to enable people to be their best. And I think another part of that is actually looking at your team and understanding genuinely what is their end game. You know, I've managed teams of people who openly said to me, you know what, I'm actually working in a side startup. I'm going to be out of here in a year and a half. Now, a traditional leader would look at that and say, you're disloyal, I need to replace you, and then you're a flight risk. But if you actually embrace that person and say, okay, well, how do we make the next year and a half the most productive possible? How do I support you and enable you to do that? That is a really interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think what you ask for is how do leaders enable, you know, creatives and people in their teams to do better work? Actually understand the people who are working for you and don't, don't look at them in a 360 degree annual performance review, which is increasingly bullshit. And I think oh, people I are starting to them. understand that. Cannot you know, stand like them. to design people's progress based on tangible points of how do we measure it? How do we know it's working? And how do we make you better at what you do that aligns with what I need you to do, which aligns with how the business makes money and stays in business? Mm -hmm. and, and I think what's interesting is that there's, this is much more complex than just five bullet points from me. But these are starting points that get Bar to a better Barry, place. don't ruin my game. I've written, Sorry, down, I've written down 10 bullet points, by the way. But like bullet points help. Oh, no, I you're far smarter than I am, but I I'm not going to bullshit you to think that I've got all the answers. Well, no, I mean, I think the big part of that answer are the words, and they're together. It's a slash, honesty and reality. You know, I, th I think that that's where it's, you're saying it starts. I believe in that. Forming alliances around honesty and reality. Yes, vision around honesty and reality. Yes, a path, working out team's endgame, communicating what the future could be, but it still is coming back to honesty and reality. And, and I think that might even be the answer to the question, how do you convince someone to come work for you if someone can see some sort of history or some jagged edge that does 
crack the eye of their values, you have to talk from a place of honesty and reality. People are kind of wary now. A lot of people who've been working for you know at least 10 years have had a few lies said to them over the, over the years and they're wary, but that's I'm going to make it one big bullet point then, honesty and reality. Does that fair, is that fair? I agree. I, I accept those. Those are perfect sum- summary points. Uh, I'm simplistic, Baza. I like that. I need okay. to be. Yeah. Uh, now, when it comes to the makers, I know you're doing some research. What have you learned about people doing creative work that you think people leading businesses who hire people to do creative work need to understand more about them? I think some of the key themes that we see emerging is that you know, while those organizations are focused on updating technology and, and infrastructure and transformation processes, I mean, that's the new flavor over the last five or 10 years. What we see is a lot of talented people are getting really, really frustrated with their workplace experiences. Mm. And that global, that, that is a global picture that we're starting to see form. Mm-hmm. And that frustration is actually leading to them either to, to become less productive in those roles or to actively help them freelance on the side. So there's, there's a lot of side hustle activity that we're seeing emerge from this, which is really interesting because increasingly businesses are subsidizing the cost of their employees getting extra revenue elsewhere. And that's also something, talk about your honesty and reality. I think as leaders, we've got to acknowledge that. If you did an audit of how many people in your organization, if you're a strategy director or an MD, et cetera, how many people are actually working on side hustles in your business? That would be a scary number. That would be interesting. And I think it's a way to cope with too many people, too many meetings, too many projects, not enough budget, not enough accountability, not enough output. And you could probably add on 10 more reasons for causing that. But the emotional intelligence, this, this is what I think one of the key themes that we've started to see emerge is the emotional intelligence required for organizations to understand their people is increasingly not there. You can count on one hand all the the normal brands that people throw out in terms of great places to work. But increasingly, the talent workforce, we've never had more options to not work for an employer. Mm -hmm. And that freelance web-like way of working is becoming the new normal, thanks Mm -hmm. to, you know, educational pieces like Sweathead and what you and Julian Cole are doing. So I I think there's something really interesting around the future of doing, because when you think about it, and I say this with with a degree of credibility, because having just done the Khan Creative Leadership Program in June, you know, I had a group of C-suite leaders from 24 countries who were all actually quite scared and questioning their roles within these organizations. And it takes a lot of effort to be vulnerable like that, to talk about that. Yeah. But then when we had senior people like Martin Sorrell or Dana Anderson, for example, come and join us or Nick Law, we had over an hour with each person as part of the program, you start to strip out the PR language and you get into the core of you know, why didn't you diversify your business model to, to bridge the, the gender pay gap? Why didn't you take ownership of that problem? This is what I mean by the elephant. And forums like that, increasingly, we don't have them in businesses. And that's the problem. Businesses are not designed to have free, open, safe conversation. And the businesses that do, I think people will gravitate to, like moths to a flame. Hmm. But then... What we're seeing in, in, as part of this research, and I think the future of doing is important because, you know, the makers are very different to people who, who comment on their work. And that's why the litmus tests for this are literally the people who are the designers and the strategists in the front line. And not to be, you know, have a, a typology around the people, but we had to because we wanted to speak to people who are actually creating things 
increasingly what we're seeing is the decisions while they join an Instagram, for example, or another business before it gets gobbled up by a bigger business, whether you're at a Droga 5 and you're acquired by Accenture, that, oh my God, I never signed up for this. There is a, a big picture and a pattern of that emerging that people are starting to question, hang on a second, yeah, I'm in a cocoon within a much bigger organization that I've got no emotional connection to. I'm not quite sure what their business models are about. I'll see how this goes. I'll give myself a year. And I, th I wonder how many people are working within those business models based on the patterns we're seeing that it's really interesting about you know, the choices people have and how that's going to restructure the talent workforce. Because as I said, I think the power balance has shifted very much to the employee. Well, here's what's going on. I mean, let me use some dramatic language. That's what language is there for, right? Not clarity, drama. Businesses are sociopaths. They don't have emotions. We know that there's a higher rate of sociopaths in leadership roles than there are relative to regular population. I think it's four to one, for example. I could, it could be wrong and maybe you even know. Businesses are sociopaths and they reward sociopathic behavior. The problem that a lot of these senior leaders in a room like the one that you were in are going to have is they might have had power for a very long time and not done anything to, to do with emotions or emotional awareness for other people. And as soon as they start to do it, people have been through this for about 10 years now. And sometimes it's through you know, business leaders that represent the internet generation turning up in Congress in America and you see their eyes and you're like, oh my God, there's nothing in those eyes. Where's the emotion? Mm -hmm. And aren't they our people? Uh, so the problem is for some of these leaders is like no one's going to believe them when they start to correct themselves. And there's this, this whole cancel movement that's coming that people are going to get cancelled and it could be at a younger age than they expect and they won't be able to just come out and apologise. Uh, the, the challenge for them is to, like a lot of them, the way that they're going to cope with it is either creating departments to signal emotional intelligence, which is fake and you see it a lot in certain areas or they're just going to keep surrounding themselves with other sociopaths. I'm being slightly dramatic, but I think research does support some of the drama here. You're right and it's, at SC, it's very scary and you, but you have to feel that that's not sustainable in the current cultural climate. And by the way, the people at the front of the Me Too movement, all middle-aged men who are piggish to think that their behaviour was okay. So phasing people like that of society, whether it's my current prime minister in Australia or, you know, an ECD who lost his job because of all his dirty acts came out, I think those are all very incredibly positive things for society. You know, and we need more of that. That will then create the new priming of a, a marketplace and a society where, you know, you're only as good as what you contribute, which, by the way, is the whole future of the meritocracy way of working and the whole future of freelancing. Your value you create is only as good as your last project. And that's a very scary and exciting new way of working, but it feels more honest and it feels more human and it also feels more collaborative. Is it an achievable future? Because humanity has never been a meritocracy. Well, I don't know, I don't know from a, an achievable success point of view, but I think it's inevitable that it's heading that way. You know, when you consider how the choices people are making, whether it's they're on their own accord or, or the fact that they were just made redundant through restructuring, increasingly you have thousands of people entering the workforce in different countries all every quarter, and that is reshaping the choices people make and, and also the financial services and the insurance products that will cater to a very different lifestyle than a, you know, you have a full-time job and you get a mortgage and the whole business models that are have always been run around those dynamics, I think it's exciting because, you know, the lemonade insurance effects on a category, I'm so excited for that to become more normal and D2C brands with the right scaling and the right funding can fundamentally restructure organizations around what people actually want 
and how they consume it rather than that utility sell you a subscription. Mm-hmm. So the business dynamics, I think, are changing and the business models are changing mm-hmm. and consumption is changing. But I think from a, a talent and a, a future of creative makers, refreshingly, they're changing as well. All right. Does that mean that you have to be privileged enough to become a creative maker in the first place, which also then means that there's not a lot of meritocracy at play? Very interesting, very interesting point. That also then I would challenge you and I'd beg the question of, you know, do you need to be privileged? Because you've got democratized access to technology now where increasingly people are being judged by their portfolios because they're using free open platform source technology. So who's to say that, you know, an opinionated 21-year-old with a creative flair doesn't have more cultural cachet value in the marketplace in a freelance marketplace than a, a 35 or 40-year-old creative in an agency. Mm. You know, it's, I, I think that the power balance has shifted and I'm so excited because it has. People don't have to follow a traditional linear path anymore. Yeah. And you're right about the education point. I, I don't think, you know, it's not a zero-sum game now. It's not the sequential ladder. I think that's very scary for people, but thank God the, the younger generation coming up are going to force the change. Yeah, look, I'm, ho- I'm hopeful for it. But at the same time, I think it's one of those thoughts that we can say just to make ourselves feel good about our own privilege. And at the same time, I've benefited from it. I mean, you know, some of the stuff I did at a young age, I I couldn't have done if the internet didn't exist or it would have been really difficult to launch a magazine without the internet and being able to connect with people all over the place at a very young age. I just want to go... Am I allowed to give you a compliment? No? What do you mean? I'm not not blowing smoke up your ass, but I think what's interesting is... Yes, it's important to acknowledge... It's important to acknowledge the, the privilege and the white privilege aspect as well. The flip side is what you do with it. And I think what you and Julian Cole are doing, it's so refreshingly rare, creating a strategic generosity to provoke these conversations, to talk to you know, schmucks like me about these topics. It's really refreshing when people leverage access and a platform to do good. And I think we would be wonderful to have more of that. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're creating lives and careers around those lives we've done a lot of free stuff we like to contribute we enjoy it we get benefits from it you know we earn money from it it's not to say that they're separate or that it's all altruism but at the same time i know there's something inside of me that's been burning from extremely young age that you know when i used to sit down and write what the rap magazine i made was about it was called stealth and i would write at like 20 years of age i'm like i want to give a voice to unrepresented or underrepresented rap voices and to be honest i didn't do enough coverage of female rappers as a percentage of the scene, it was probably small. Same with female graffiti artists. So I wasn't totally coherent in what I was doing and I'm more aware of that now. Uh, but that theme has been inside of me for some reason for a long time. But I, and I appreciate your comment. I also, you know, we are earning money from what we do. It's just not always about that. And for me, it's definitely not always about that, but it's there. So I just want to go back to the, yeah, the workplace experience for makers. And we were talking, I think you were describing the situation where people were essentially frustrated with options. F-W-O. Mm-hmm. I hope we, did we just coin that? Do we? Do we? And you were talking about side hustles as a way to cope or as a, as a symptom of being frustrated with options. Presenteeism. Yes is another symptom, you know, people turning up to work, mm-hmm. they're there, they kind of ghost through meetings, through timesheets, through emails, they look busy, but they're not really doing a lot. Are there any other kind of symptoms of frustrated with options that are relatively modern? From my, from my lens, I, I actually think that what's also driving it 
is that sense of loneliness as well and anxiety. Mm. I think that a lot of people feel the lack of leadership from top down and the lack of direction. And they can also you know, yep. read in the press what's happening to the agency landscape, for example. Yep. And I think fear is what's also driving, fear and anxiety is what's forcing people to hedge those bets as well. Uh, you've been exposed to Europe and European philosophy. What does the word anxiety mean to you and how are you using it in this particular situation? Well, anxiety in the sense of I'm fearful because I lack control and I'm a victim of a circumstance or something mm. versus flipping that into, okay, now what can we do about it? But the, the European framing of that would be a victim of circumstance or something that's causing you to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I think there's a, a bunch of stuff written about that sense of victimhood and how that can lead to withdrawal from life and positive interactions and from color and how that can lead to a life of passivity and how that can compound anxiety and turn even worse. It does. And that leads then, then that leads to the road of purpose and meaning and okay, now what am I going to do about it? What are my values? Are they congruent with that of the organization, with, mm. with the people that I could be working with? That's where it becomes a very interesting, complex mix of decisions and what, what you actually do. So I like your FWO. Ah, let's, let's, uh, let's publish it. Um, now, in your conversations with leaders about creativity and specifically leaders who run creative organizations, is there much talk about how to approach the mental health of their employees? No, and surprisingly, very limited, actually, because in some ways, they're so overwhelmed by just the competitive need to stay afloat and to frankly keep their jobs. I mean, some of the people, some of the most senior people that that we met with at Khan, for example, who spent time with the Berlin School group, I mean, those people, Nick Law went and changed jobs, joined Apple, etc. There's a fluency and and a movement within the market, which I mean, they're trying to just not only keep the lights on in their organizations, but keep their roles. So in some cases, embracing the types of change feels directly at odds with, with what the, their KPIs are and their, their metrics on a quarterly basis. But, you know, it's a, it's a growing concern because it's, it's happening within the organization. So I think that's a trend that we'll see in the next two or three years that will become much more front and center as it links to HR and productivity but also, I think chief financial officers will start asking around, well, how are we retaining the right talent? How do we punish leaders for churning out talent? And looking at metrics in a very different way. But I do think mental health and the well-being of the organization and the cultural sentiment within the organization, I think it will go from exit interview type, yep, tick, we've done that, to how listening and responding as the employee experience goes. And I think that will become the, the new normal. Yeah, there's a lot of weird HR behaviors like annual reviews, exit interviews, and mediation that, you know what, if you're youngish or newish to a career listening to this, you don't have to do any of that. Sometimes it's actually quite abusive. I've opted out of a lot of this stuff. Sometimes they're like, you don't get your final pay unless you do it. I'm like, I've been here for ages and no one wanted to actually have a proper conversation, like an adult conversation about any of this. I'm not spending another hour filling in a form with like a junior HR person. And I actually feel quite heated about it. And that heat's going to come out at some point. Uh, But um, you know, the other weird thing that I've heard a little bit about is as people try to get into this space of emotional intelligence, not only do leaders learn how to say certain words, you're like, yeah, that's a new word. You got coached to say that. That's not actually how you think, behave, or what you care about, is often they make 
junior people pay a price for them trying to force emotional intelligence into middle management. And this can take the shape of the following situation where someone's you know, in a, an early stage career and they've got a, a boss who's not that capable of being a boss. Maybe they steal the person's work, take credit for the work, treat the person not very well. This becomes a known issue and then all of a sudden the younger person is put into, a, into mediation with the boss and it's like mm. as if it's their person and they're told yeah. like HR and the CEO outsource the improvement of the boss person to the junior person and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not cool. Do you hear stories like no. this? Yeah, and, and you highlight a lot of the, the absolutely irrational behaviours of a lot of businesses, particularly agencies, which I've spent most of my career working in. And what's interesting is an exit interview is the biggest slap in the face because had in some cases, had the issues been listened to, acknowledged and addressed, that employee wouldn't have to use that forum to speak truthfully and honestly. And I'm sure you would acknowledge this in your career and the amount of people you speak to. Very seldom do people speak the truth because then it becomes a mechanism of fear. I don't want to have opportunities in the marketplace ruined or doors closed because that influential CEO knows a lot of people. And people end up just bottlenecking their experience, but it's not actually benefiting other people from a recruitment point of view, which is why Glassdoor is such an amazing vehicle for people to transparently see this is what's happening within the organization. Mm. So there's a circular loop now where I, I've seen businesses, and tell me if you see this, businesses taking a little bit less stock in the exit interview, but now they're looking in their blind spots and saying, wow, this is actually sentiment what's happening within the organization in a Glassdoor from an acquisition and retention point of view. How do we elevate those up to the dashboard of stuff we should care about? And, and it's helping management be more human. So I, I see that as a very positive outlet for people to talk about. Yeah, but also there are companies and Glassdoor makes money from this who very aggressively manage their Glassdoor situations. Mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. I've worked in one in particular. And I'm like, that was not a good experience. There's enough Glassdoor reviews that support that. And then there's this heavy handed like five out of five and people interacting You're like, this is nonsense. This is not real. And that's why people are trusting platforms less and less. And that, that is exactly your point. You know, that they've been, from, rather from democratized, there's this corporate veneer and bullshit on it where people are realizing that they're micromanaging that, just mm-hmm. like Amazon reviews for products are manufactured. Mm-hmm. So you're right. But people's voices are coming out increasingly and they can only in- increasingly do so. Mm. The best thing out of this entire discussion is in the phrase frustrated with options and it's the word options and privilege or not, hopefully that privilege of having options becomes more available to people. It's not going to be available to everyone. It won't be a complete pure meritocracy. I just don't, you know, maybe in a hundred years it will. It's going to take a long time. Uh, But the idea of options has always been, to me at least, what the internet was originally supposed to be about. Now you're doing research into workplaces for makers, right? Could you give us a brief overview of what it is and then tell people where they can get researched? Sure. So the future, and firstly, thank you for for the opportunity to mention it. The future of doing research, it's really designed to uncover what do creative makers need from their working experience. So that those learnings can help organizations attract and retain the right type of talents in the future. So really what that comes down to is that, you know, creative makers are evaluating their, their commercial worth and how that aligns to how they're compensated. So there is a pay component to this, but this is really a global talent around a talent survey. And what we really want is the more voices 
the better. The Berlin School of Creative Leadership is our is our academic partner in translating these learnings into something very meaningful. This is really a gift to the industry. This is not something that Tracy Brown and I want to monetize. This is really about making the industry better by informing organizations about the needs of creative makers and informing creative makers around other patterns of people like them of what they're searching for. So essentially we've asked people to share with us their experience, but also how would they like to see the system working in the future? And employed people and self-employed, I think there's a very important role for both to talk about that. It's very easy to say, well, stuff that I'm going freelance and leaving the system. We want people who are doing that. Sorry, Mark, I'm about to use the bullshit lingo, that entrepreneurial versus intrapreneurial path as well, mm-hmm. if I can use your, have your permission to say that. <laughs> but th- I have to, this is the bullshit lingo test, which I found very, really- very, no one needs permission from anybody to use words. It's just some of those words just go like through one ear and out the other with me. I'm like, hang on, what, hang on. I'm sure and somebody I, And was, I totally agree with I'm you. I'm sure that somebody was speaking now. just then. I'm, jo- I'm joking. I totally agree with you. But that's in a nutshell what the future of doing project is. Because if you think about it, what's going on in the world, everyone, some people are fixated on the future of work. Thankfully, Andrew Yang is talking about it in your democratic nomination process. But then there's a big gap between especially people in the communications industry, you know, the Martin Sorrells, et cetera. You never hear these people talk about how automation is going to affect their workforce. And people like us who are the makers and the worker bees, we are busy requiring different skill sets to try and be more competitive in the marketplace. Those two things need to link up together. And I think the future of doing research is designed to do just that. Awesome. Uh, Look, my nervousness with a lot of these leaders, whether or not they're leaders of quote unquote creative companies or not, is like they resent people. And if they could design a company that didn't need people, they absolutely would do that and they would do it tomorrow. They have to act like they care about people at times. And I'm not talking about any names you've mentioned, but that is totally a brain that's out there and they tend to strive for power and get power. Absolutely. And automation will enable them with with the right tools in order for them to do that. But what's interesting and exciting, commercial creativity is very valued. The definition is really changing. You don't have to be an ECD to be considered creative. And now there's a much bigger ring fence pen that everyone can be a part of. And developing better leaders that are inclusive, park their ego at the door, are more authentic and just act like fucking people that is what will gravitate the right minds of people to want to work with them. Whether you're a brand or you're a freelancer, I think that it's that simple. The future is very complex by way of technology, but I think the simplicity is the combination of those things. I agree. I agree. Barry, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your research, your point of view and your future with us today on Sweathead. Where are you most active on the internet if people want to look you up? I'm a LinkedIn guy and I won't bore anyone with my Instagram platform but we would love and thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you and, and hello everyone globally we'd love to have your voices as part of the future of doing research and i will share those links in the sweathead group in facebook love it i'd love to see a linkedin guy on a, on a t-shirt or in your twitter bio or maybe just on your linkedin bio that'd be kind of cool barry thank you so much for joining me on sweater today you. best wishes thank you so much be well peace